Hello and welcome to the second episode of In Search of Source. My name is Ryan Gore and I have taken a break from listening to this new Maybe album to record this very podcast. Today with me on this pod I have... Uh, Brandon Hill, uh, music journalist with Central Sauce. And I'm going to give a shout out to Poly Anarchy by Hermitude. You should really go check out that album. And I'm Brian Capitel, uh, also a music journalist uh, with Central Sauce. And uh, I've been listening to Noel Gallagher's High Flying Birds recently. Yes. Yeah, that's pretty much what I've been listening <laughs> to. <laughs> All right, great. Okay. So uh, before we jump in, I just want to say thank you to everyone who listened last week, everyone who shared it, everyone who loved it, and let us know that they loved it. Um, I know it's a new podcast, so we have a long way to go before we kind of perfect it, but to get so much love uh, straight out the gate was uh, really great. So thank you for that. Uh, On today's show, we have articles about how Twitter changed music, and we have profiles on Ari Lennox and the great Nas. Okay, so let's jump into the first article we have. Uh, It's the one I brought. It's from Pitchfork by Eric Harvey. Um, It's essentially talking about the impact specifically of Twitter on the music industry. Obviously, social media as a whole has had a lot of impact on many things. But as the article states, the biggest social media... um, outlet that has had the biggest impact on any industry has been Twitter on music. Um, The article opens talking about Kanye and kind of his stream of consciousness, um, talking about how he used Twitter as a way to express his answers to imaginary interview questions. Um, He also goes into, Eric also goes into how... Twitter kind of creates this new space for artists to discover each other and to communicate and how at this point it's kind of evolved into this second job for artists. They no longer just make music then palm it off to the label to do the promotion or go to some interview sta- to radio station to do some interviews. It's Twitter's their main uh, source of promo now. Something really interesting that the piece brought up was this idea of ambient awareness, um, which is essentially how um, users on Twitter can kind of create this fake relationship with an artist based on reading their stream of consciousness and how that works as a promo tool for fans to connect with their musicians um and for musicians to essentially extend their persona further if used correctly uh the article also dives into how a lot of artists end up taking a break from twitter kind of having to take a step back for their own mental health or even for pr reasons but how they always tend to come back because it proves to be the number one source of promo essentially um, so yeah, I'll hand this over to you guys to discuss. Um, the main thing I wanted to talk about was the positives and negatives of how Twitter has impacted us. Obviously, it creates this amazing community among fans and among artists to collab, which is also which is always a uh, a positive thing. But there's also this dark side where 
artists can almost sacrifice themselves for the sake of promo. So uh, what, what do you guys think of it? What are your reactions to the piece? So, I mean, first of all, just from a like, straight reporting standpoint, I'm always interested in how stories get developed, uh, you know, how they're pitched and, you know, kind of what phases they go through before they reach the final product. And this one is just so comprehensively put together, like with so many examples that like I got to wonder like how if, you know, the initial pitch starts with a story idea about the evolution of Kanye's Twitter rants and then (laughs) offshoots into a thousand other ways that you find that Twitter has made, you know, concrete influences on the industry itself. Um, So, you know, I think that that just reporting wise, it's incredible how well put together, uh, how the article, you know, doesn't miss out on many aspects and pulls from so many like different sources. You know, there's not just like a singular focus. It pulls from so many areas Mm -hmm. to get a real comprehensive picture of, you know, not just the evolution of music Twitter, but how different impacts throughout the evolution have influenced the artist and how it's changed, you know, like you like you mentioned, the way that the music is promoted. Yeah, and I think that's a really good point. Um, there will kind of be some kind of landmark event that kind of inspires a trend for a while. And yeah, that was a very interesting way to frame the piece. So uh, yeah, word to Eric on that. Yeah, so I had sort of the complete opposite take as you guys. <laughs> um, I just, yeah, I find it like overhyped and like just social media in general, but specifically like with twitter and it being a platform for communication i think there's like this the loss of the mythos of the artist right or the artiste right like Hmm. you don't have like a a david bowie who had a mystique had this this bit of secrecy to them right so you lose that kind of like superstar uh sort of superstardom with musicians and it's you know it's it's different but i think a lot of musicians a lot of talent um i think they've now sort of be- become a, like slightly resentful of how um you know approachable that they might have to become through a platform like through twitter so i think that's what and the article mentions beyonce and i think that's what works for beyonce is that she's still very guarded and everything's very um streamlined in in terms of like what she chooses to put out there right whereas like <laughs> Kanye is everything he does is like a stream of consciousness so like it was working in the beginning but that quickly turned on him so yeah that that's sort of like my my two cents on that it's yeah, actually I think that's definitely a good point in terms of having no um kind of as you said mystique I guess with an artist and I think you do experience that with some some musicians like Frank Ocean is probably one of the most like elusive artists out there and he very much controls his output um I feel like a lot of artists while they're coming up they use Twitter as a tool to promote themselves but they never are able to pull away from that and grow as they as their fan base grows and kind of stay in that space where they feel like oh let me tweet this out let me tweet this out let me uh, get myself out there more and more and more they 
struggle to kind of take a step back and realize, oh, I don't have to do that now. <clears throat> At this stage of my career, it's probably best to uh, navigate in a different way, which th- something Frank Ocean did. Um, just being part of our future, pretty much a lot of stuff about yourself is out there, out there. And then you see him like later in his career, after Channel Orange, he took many steps back and has just been away from the spotlight, which has created this kind of otherworldly perception of Frank. Um, and he said it himself in the few interviews that he's done. It's like, the things people think about me are nothing like what I actually am. And in that case, the his mystique is like working for him really, really well. Yeah, I mean that that point it definitely brings into question how the recipe for a successful artist has changed. You know, does it does it make it an artist more likely to be successful because they're easily connectable on Twitter? Um, the like the article has a specific quote where it says. Even though he deleted his archives, Vince Staples' best tweets in their own way are as good as his music. <laughs> Which, you know, I've thought, thought for a long time that, like, Vince Staples is, is just flat out one of the funniest people on Twitter. But then you also have examples, you know, like you mentioned, Frank Ocean and Beyonce, of artists who are less vocal on Twitter, but it doesn't seem to inhibit their success. But a lot of their success came before... Twitter was a necessity, you know, it's not like, like yeah. when 20, yeah. they talk about 2010 when Kanye really got in and before 2010, you know, like Beyonce was still a name and it's, it's stuff like that, that, you know, was established pre Twitter that doesn't change things for that artist, but for a new artist who's trying to get some traction and trying to get some come up, do they now have to be, you know, super out there? Uh, I know you love Earl sweatshirt, so you know, yep. kind of think about Earl's is very, you know, introverted and not out there with people. If he was required to give off a fake persona where he's, you know, super approachable and accessible, maybe, you know, that could have hampered his success in a way because it would have felt very, like, you know, disingenuine from him if he's trying yeah. to, like, be really connected to fans and all that. Yeah, it's a very interesting, um, it's very interesting how it's impacted artists themselves. But what Eric does a good um, job of is explaining how it's impacted the industry and how the combination of streaming services and Twitter has kind of completely changed the rules for um, essentially labels and major artists. Um, He brought up the idea of the stream and this is a quote from the article. He said, um, Twitter has the capacity to place its users in an infinitely unfolding present which helps when some something breaks, like Beyonce tweeting that picture of the lemonade thing, it's everywhere within seconds. It can't, Twitter has this uh, mechanism where if somebody is talking about something, it will reach everyone. Every voice is heard loudly. Um, so when it comes to like surprise releases that, so Beyonce can still maintain her mystique, but um, the I guess the Twitter algorithm allows it so that everyone knows what she's up to. If she wants everyone to know, everyone will know with minimal effort. Which, you know, in a way, it's like Twitter made surprise releases possible, almost. Yeah. Like, 
you know, even even if you're a big name artist and you know you drop an album pre Twitter or you know even you know pre internet especially, but if you drop an album with limited marketing, your initial audience is going to be very small, and then that very small audience is the only one spreading the album by word of mouth, which just makes it spread mm-hmm. so much slower. Social media and Twitter and stuff like that, it makes your initial audience automatically so much bigger. And then the reach of each individual within that audience is thousand times bigger than what word of mouth used to be able to generate. Yeah, so one of the... I want to just close this little section on... Um probably the best thing about Twitter and Twitter at its purest is kind of just for the fans of artists. I know it can be a very toxic place and it can be a place where people argue endlessly or artists expose themselves to be idiots. (laughs) But um, it's very purest. If you can tap into this little section where it's just people being nerdy about stuff they love, it's the greatest thing ever. Um, Eric had a quote in the article he said Twitter is a a virtual space for the near instant collective exuberance over something new and that's like the best thing about Twitter and about social media I guess in general is how you can find fans of something from your bedroom and (laughs) connect with them over something that you love like, it's very unlikely that I'm going to meet someone in Birmingham, England, who really loves this new Maybe album, but I can log onto Twitter and find, like, hundreds of people who feel the same way about me and can have, like, really passionate conversations about music. So, uh, yeah, I do love Twitter. <laughs> Unlike a lot of people, I think it's great, but you just... I think a lot of people have to know how to use it. Yeah, you definitely have to be aware of, you know, what you're reading and how, you know, social media just operates in general. But I, I think it's a great thing. Maybe, I mean, maybe not as great specifically for artists as individuals because they do talk about, you know, some of the negative effects that it has. But I think mm-hmm. on music as a whole, it's a good thing because, like, what you said with May- that Maybe album, a lot of what can make an album, like, a big event album or a big moment isn't just, you know, listening to that album yourself. It's sharing it and talking about it with other people who are just as excited about it. I think that's a big part of what makes really good music stick. Yeah, it's the community surrounding the music. It's the memes that flow about it. That's how it reaches... That's how, essentially, people express their passion. (laughs) Yeah. It can be great, but there are effects on mental health, and there's definitely a balance to be found that not many people have really figured out yet uh yeah does anyone get anything else to add about that piece what's everybody's favorite celebrity twitter beef oh my god <laughs> personally i thought the uh jid tory lanes beef was pretty great <laughs> jid i think said something along the lines of like in 2016 i was touring with tory and he lost his hair now in 2018 <laughs> he got his hair back and lost his mind <laughs> yeah. I love Jude because like he's just waiting for someone to test him he said it in so many interviews he's so yeah. ready for a rap beef I love it in terms of my favourite Twitter beef ah oh, that Kanye with Khalif one was completely random and out of nowhere 
I just remember just thinking, what on earth is going on? <laughs> <laughs> it was one of the most random, crazy things that ever happened. Kanye's always got random beef. Yeah, he's always got heat for someone. <laughs> I'm trying to think of one that really sticks out. You might have to come back to me. I, I was going to say the Kanye West, Travis Scott thing, just like the whole checks over stripes thing. That was That was pretty funny. <laughs> Yeah, most things involving Kanye and Twitter are funny. Kanye Drake. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god, so good. <laughs> I, I mean, Kanye literally thought that Drake was going to put a hit on him. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's amazing. I think that's why, like, Kanye had to be held back from Twitter. I don't, I don't believe it was on his own accord. I think the Kardashian machine just kind of peeled him off his phone <laughs> so yeah, he couldn't cause any more trouble alright so my piece is for Rolling Stone it is titled Ari Lennox's Rejection Paved Road to Shea Butter Baby by Brittany Spanos and this, I thought this was just a fantastic profile when it comes to taking an artist and really humanizing them, you know, really taking them and looking at them not as a producer of music, but as a person, you know, who grew and they developed with music as an outlet. Uh, I'm a big one for always like looking at like artist centric material. Um, because, you know, ultimately they are the ones that are driving the music. And I think that as journalists, we, we do owe some kind of responsibility to an artist, um, which, you know, brings in the context that I was looking at this piece from is in light of JPEG Mafia's recent Twitter rant about uh, music journalists, like disrespecting the artists and that the artists are, you know, putting themselves out there to make this product that then you have music journalists who are making their money off of the artist's work. And now I definitely am not part of the camp that is, you know, anti-music critic or anti-music journalist because, you know, if you followed the Twitter stuff, JPEG got pretty far out there. But I did pay attention to, uh, he pointed out a Pitchfork review of Hobo Johnson and said some had some pretty, you know, pulled some pretty odd-looking quotes out of the review, so I happened to go and read that review myself, um, and I think it brings it brings into account, you know, where you draw the line in a review between, you know, talking about the album or talking about the music, and then taking personal shots at the artist, trying to be clever uh, in a way that's just entertainment value for your readers, and you know, I think that just ties back into treating the journalist, or, you know, treating the artist, sorry, treating the artist, not the journalist, but treat the journalist with respect too, but treating the <laughs> artists with respect. Uh, just, you know, off the top, a quote from the Hobo Johnson review. Yeah, to Hobo Johnson, Earth's imminent demise won't be because of climate change or nuclear war. Instead, the apocalypse will arrive the next time a girl he likes doesn't text him back. That, I mean, that's just, that's just being clever for reader entertainment value. Without yeah. really, you know, diving into anything substantive about the music itself. 
So, you know, I just kind of want to hear your guys' thoughts on, you know, where where that line might be. And then, you know, in context of this Ari profile, ways that the journalist, you know, really connected to the artist and, ex- you know, expressed that connection in a very, like, humanizing way. So I have a couple of thoughts on this. Um, so my, my main thought uh, based on reading that piece is that, Look, music journalists aren't supposed to be uh, psychophantic, right? So it doesn't, um, you know, artists get their feelings hurt all the time. Uh, like, I get that they're putting this stuff out there, but like, as a journalist, I mean, you're technically supposed to be objective. I mean, that's a bit different with music journalism because music is subjective. But this idea that, you know, artists have of music critics and gatekeepers, it, it, it just seems really wrongheaded at least in, in in my opinion so i i may have a different take on that as you guys that being said um have you guys seen the washington post review of a post malone concert that went viral no so i think i skimmed over it but i'm having trouble calling to mind like exactly you might spark so, something yeah so there was this article uh by th- uh, this writer named jeff weiss and he wrote a, this hit piece essentially on Post Malone. And it's, it's sort of what you were saying about like how it's the entertainment value for the reader. He calls Post Malone like the swamp thing emerging from nacho cheese, like just this <laughs> completely ludicrous imagery, right? Like this cartoonish uh, descriptions. And it's just like, you clearly don't like this guy's music, but like, Again, like you're in no way pre- even pretending to be objective. You know, he said that, you know, Post Malone is the perfect artist for this generation because he's brain, de- brain dead, you know? And it's like, Jeez. that's that's going too far. Like, no, it's so just then, personal you know, Post attacks. Malone. Sorry, go ahead. No, it, I was just, it's just like, that's just personal attacks. You know, it's not substantive quality writing about the music, even. Right. So he, he did try to justify it by saying, sort of like, this is another uh, white rapper culturally appropriating uh, black culture and black music and compared him to like Vanilla Ice or Eminem. And he's like, he's not Eminem. He's more Cheddar Bob. It, it, it just like it, he's just looking for an excuse to shit on post. Right. And it's, you know, and and that's just because it's it's easy to do. Right. So um, I, I so I again, like I think. There should be a degree of objectivity even when it comes to music journalism and that's just my kind of point on that yeah and i think something can be said for constructive criticism rather than just bashing them i mean sometimes it's really hard to do so um me and brandon we work the submissions that come to the come into central source and sometimes you will come across a song and you're like this is bad but when you're giving feedback to an artist, which is essentially what a review is, um, you're you want you either want them to improve, or you want them to, or you're doing it purely for an audience, you know. And uh, going back to Peggy, the JPEG Mafia, what he said on Twitter, he was like, um, someone 
was like, oh, it's a shot at Fantano because, you know, whenever someone talks about music journalism, well, Fantano's the only one who uh, comes to mind, apparently. But um, he was like, but Peggy responded and was like, no, um, at least Fantano actually talks about the music. And Fantano has had some scorching reviews. Yeah. He's, he's gone for artists before. And he had one Big Sean review where he just said no for four minutes straight. <laughs> so I think that point doesn't necessarily stand. And I think that a lot of writers see their work as entertainment rather than journalism, essentially. Which is fine because there should be an entertainment value to it. But yeah. you can't let that entertainment value surpass the fact that you are writing about about a person, like a human being. Yes. And especially especially artists, music. A lot of these people are more vulnerable because, you know, artistry and creativity in general just makes you more vulnerable. It's, it's a field of vulnerability. Yeah. And it's uh, taking advantage of that for just like entertainment effects is it, it's just eliminating or it's building up a wall where people stop looking at these artists as people. And they start looking them at them as like you're reviewing a product, and mm. you know I just, I just have a real problem with the music industry in general, in the way that artists are often treated as products. And this JPEG Mafia rant is just one of the ways that this most recently has cropped up to me. Um, yeah, it kind of creates this division between journalists and artists when that should not be the case at all. That relationship should work in harmony. You should have creatives trying their hardest to put out their best work and then receiving actual good criticism uh, constructive criticism rather than just being bashed for putting yourself out there it's just not a healthy relationship um so yeah i mean i i agreed to an extent but i again like the the psychophantic thing like you know you shouldn't get so close to your subject Right where it's like you hmm. can't criticize them at all. So like I think gatekeepers like the problem with the internet essentially is that it causes erasure of gatekeepers almost completely, right? So, uh, and then that's why we see like quality drop. So I think that the gatekeepers play a necessary like uh, a necessary role, but at the same time like like Brandon saying you have to also respect people's feelings and there's that loss of empathy because people are on social media and they're not seen as like a person behind a Twitter account, right? So you you do have to look at the human side of it, but I don't know, again, like I think as a journalist, you should maintain a degree of objectivity there. I think Peggy got caught up in a moment and got caught up in one particular review or interview or whatever that kind of rubbed in the wrong way. Um. He did go back and say there are great journalists out there. And I think we should start talking about one of them. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Brittany Spanos. Yeah. Her um, profile on Ari Lennox. Yeah, it's, so this... It's really great. It's, you know, and, and it's... I, I loved it because just of my my personal thing with, you know, like humanizing artists, is, to me is my favorite way to, you know, get to know an artist whose music I'm a big fan of, and Ari Lennox, absolutely, like, bless her soul, I love Shea Butter Baby, loved Shea Butter Baby, but 
so what really, really brought out, you know, I think the, the connectivity to this profile for me was that the artist looked at it in a frame of her family. It, you know, took it, um, most of the article is set where Ari Lennox is a child. And, you know, it's doing a profile on a big R&B artist now who's like an adult. And instead of taking the angle for, you know, how they're working on their music and where they get the inspiration for their music and, you know, and focusing on now, it goes back and it, it makes commentary on where she is now by viewing it through a lens of her childhood and her connection to her family and her grandparents. And I think that just really brings out you know, the fact that this artist is a person. And especially R&B, you know, it can be a very, like, emotionally charged genre itself. So in a way, when you have background like this, it can it can make the music itself better because you have a better understanding of where, like, the emotional energy of your favorite song is coming from. Yeah, and there was a really great moment in this piece um, where Ari was talking about how she used to perform at church. Oh, that was my and, favorite. Yeah, <laughs> and she said she used to close her eyes and just sing and not worry about the audience. And she said one time she opened her eyes and there was this white lady in the front row who was covering her ears and she said she just did not care. <laughs> and that's just wonderful. Like, the the confidence in yourself just be like i love doing this so i'm going to do it i absolutely love that aspect of it and i liked our Lanks's album i liked um shea butter baby i was more of a fan of a last dp um fur but um still this this piece like brought her down to earth so much and yeah i, I loved it i absolutely loved it yeah um, and just there's a piece towards the end where just the innocence of saying that their album's release was bittersweet because her aunt and her grandpa had just passed away and didn't get to hear it, mm-hmm. you know, also is, is just a reminder that, yeah, artists are putting music out there for us, for the consumer, but, you know, they're also putting music out there for just the innocent factor of, like, they want, you know, they want their parents to listen to it. Yeah. You know, their their parents have been there. Their grandparents have been there through their whole growth and their whole come up. And it just seems so sweet, like, to imagine that you get an artist, you know, who's selling all these albums and, like, making this money. But then they still, like, their mom is still sitting there with earbuds in, like, listening to her daughter sing. And she's thinking about the day that her daughter was in church singing with her eyes closed and, you know, (laughs) realized that she wanted to do this. And that's just a very very like powerful connectivity that I just absolutely loved in this profile. There was also like a cool thing too about like culturally, like how she was raised, right? Like the thing about like the three grandmothers, like I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. That's a really interesting way to grow up. And I love how the piece kind of detailed her influences and you kind of like, um, she talked about, uh, wanted to sing like Mariah Carey and Britney did, did such a good job of kind of helping you visualize all these influences coming together to create what is Ari Lennox and if you go and listen to her music you can you can really understand that um, and th- I love the um, 
this section's about essentially just trying to get on and how um, she's talking about playing different venues and people just not responding to her and um, how she kind of still wants to do everything her, her own way. Like, she could have let that kind of stuff make her small, but even when she was dealing with people like J. Cole, who's massive, she was still pushing to have her own imprint on things and uh, put this album out the way she wanted to. And, yeah, that's a, that's a testament to Dreamville as well to just for just standing by that and kind of letting her have her own process. Yeah, that was definitely an interesting little insert. So I saw a story circulating uh, yesterday about basically a quote uh, from Nas saying that he's sort of tired of the celebration of Elmatic. So I saw this this quote uh, basically appear in several different media outlets, but um, it's actually taken from a larger feature piece, a profile piece uh, by Hote Living, um, and it's by Laura Schreffler. Um and it's uh, it's really about Nas uh, drawing inspiration uh, for the Lost Tapes too, and that's really what the the article is centered around is like what Nas's life is like now, and what the process of recording the Lost Tape Tapes too, like what those sessions were were like. Yeah, well, I really like this piece because. Um... It kind of framed Nas as not just the guy who made Illmatic. It really brought in a scope of his life right now. And even though Illmatic plays some role in like his current life, there's so much he's doing currently. And I love um, the way... Is it Laura who wrote the piece? Yeah. Yeah, the way she kind of focused on his current state of inspiration... And I love the section where he's talking about not wanting to go to the studio uh, and yes. just wanting to just go out and live his life. But when he comes back to the studio, he's like, oh, I really love making music. But that just got me thinking about how inspiration can hit an artist. But as you get older and as you're so seasoned as Nas is, it's not a rush to go and just create. And when you experience something, the first thought in your mind isn't, oh, let's go write about this. It's... I'm just going to experience this for what it is. Yeah, there's so, yeah a, I really enjoyed this. There's a quote in there from him where he says, people say that practice makes perfect, and if you're in the studio all the time, your music comes out better. I know I could make better music if I was in there all the time, but I don't care. I care about my music, but I don't care to work on it all the time. And to me, that's just such an interesting take from such an iconic artist. You know, where you th- when you think of these artists who are up there in, you know, top five, top ten conversations, and you think of the quality of the work that they put out, you you build this image where you think that they are working all the time and that their craft, like, consumes their life because that's what it takes to be on top. Hmm. So, you know, it was a really, it was a really interesting take for Nas to express that, like, now, you know, now he... You know, he doesn't want to have that life-consuming 
everything. You know, he he wants to live his life, but at the same time work on his music. You know, and that there can be both parts of that existing at the same time. Yeah, and um, the article mentions all the stuff he's doing nowadays. I think it's pretty well documented the amount of businesses that Nas is invested in. And obviously these restaurants is opening as well. So he has way more going on than just music. Um, honestly, I don't think his recent output has been that great. But I think I'm just okay with that because of all the stuff we've already got from Nas. Like, it's fine. He can he can rest now. He's made... <laughs> he had the, Yeah, he had that run of albums. We don't talk about, like, 1999, but... Like, I think from 94 to about 2005, that's a really good run of albums that's kind of underrated in hip-hop. So I think Nas is happy with the work he's done, and music isn't his job now. He's good. He he's he, Reading this interview, there was a sense of freedom in him. He's like, I could go work on music all the time, but, you know, I've... I have kids, I have these businesses, I have a lot of stuff to do and I'm not going to be tied down to anything. I I agree. I think it's he's coming from a healthier place, right? So uh, mm-hmm. one of his uh, last few albums was called Life is Good, right? So he's enjoying the fruits of his labor. He's enjoying how good his life is. So he has something to write back to us, something to report back, right? So I think that's an important aspect for artists to to strive and get you know creativity get inspiration from like by contrast like you look at somebody that like Eminem who's constantly haunted by like his own shadow and trying to improve and somebody who is consumed with trying to outdo himself and it's it's making him tortured whereas like Nas is just like okay I can let my foot off the gas I can enjoy this for what it is I I think that's a much healthier perspective for an artist and I think it shows a sign of maturity I think yeah I, I think that can be a healthier perspective for a consumer too like there's something about these really great artists where we're constantly comparing their newest work to their best work I mean just an, ex- an example that has had a little bit more personal relevance to me is like damn Kendrick's album damn like I loved that album but most of the time, you know, even if you talk about how much you love Damn, someone's going to come slide in with, oh, but To Pimp a Butterfly was better. Like, To Pimp a Butterfly is Kendrick's best album or, you know, something along that lines. And it's like, can't like that can be true while also Damn being a really, really good album. Yeah. Like if you people don't enjoy things in a vacuum. Yeah. If you put if you put Damn into like another, you know, a mid or upper mid tier artist discography, if you put Damn in there. People, you know, it'd be, wow, like, this is incredible. This work from this artist is amazing. This, like, so good. But then, you know, why when you put it, when you get it out of an artist who has so many other fantastic works in their discography, do people want to talk about it like it's not as good? So I I have a thought on that. So specifically with the Damn album, I think it's because that's sort of when um, Kendrick's... uh, career reached its apex right that's when it was at its height like he won a pulitzer prize for that album right and it's like well the that last project like to pimp a butterfly that's a good seemed point. a little more 
fleshed out, seemed a little more well thought out, and seemed more deserving of something like a Pulitzer Prize. So, you know, and Damn was a lot more commercial than To Pimp a Butterfly in a way. So I, I think that has a lot to do with it. But yeah, that's that's sort of just my, my take on it. Mm. Uh, going back to Nas and like, I guess the quote everyone's talking about essentially expressing how Nas is kind of done with theomatic hype. Um, and going back to his maturity, um, I think it's a, a really commendable thing to look back on an album that was so celebrated and still is so celebrated and is undeniably one of the greatest albums, at least in hip-hop, ever released. To look back with such a nonchalant attitude is like, I'm done with that. <laughs> I've celebrated it almost every five years for the last 25 years. I'm not in that place anymore. I'm looking forward. And that's a, that's a great perspective that the piece brought. On, I mean, on the, on the topic of, like, that specific quote being pulled out and focused on by so many media outlets, like, how ironic is it pulling that one bit of the profile when so much of the profile focuses on, mm-hmm. you know, him leaving the past behind and, you know, advancing forward to who he is now and what he wants next, that just the irony of, you know, someone reading this profile and they're just like, I think, you know, Brian said uh, earlier, calling it like a sound bite, And, you know, that's exactly, if that's all that a media outlet pulls from this article, it's purely because they think that's going to be the best headline. Like, oh, Nas, Nas says he's done with Illmatic. Look at this, like, all the celebration, all the honor he gets, and Nas isn't going to, you know, he's going to say he's done with Illmatic. Like, you know, you missed the whole point of this profile. Yeah. Yeah, it's, that. I mean, that's what's really tricky about online journalism, right? It's because, like, that's what sells. That's what will get clicks, right? So people know that, and that's what they'll piece from it whereas like the complexity or the more nuanced uh subject isn't really gonna you know be plastered all over the headlines yeah it's a really it's a huge shame because um i'm not familiar familiar with this outlet and i probably would have just heard that seen that headline had uh, brian not brought that piece to us so i'm very thankful because this um, profile is such a good study of where Nas is right now. And I think everyone should read it. If you're a fan of Nas, it's a must-read because I haven't seen him give this much perspective on his current life. Right. Every interview, he seems to be asked about, so, you're doing stuff now, that's great, but Illmatic, how about how about Illmatic, though, Nas? <laughs> and I'm, I, you can tell he's tired of it. And he, I don't blame him at all, especially when, first of all, he has so many other great albums. And secondly, when he is someone evolving and updating, even like, even now at 47, I think he is, he's still a growing person. Um, and Nas came into the spotlight when he was what? He released Neomatic, what, 21? I, I think it said 22 in the article. Okay, 22. Was it even, was it even younger than... Okay, 22 is a specific quote. So yeah, Illmatic might have been... It was probably okay. could have been even younger than that. Yeah, I think I read somewhere he'd been... He was writing that stuff at 18. And... Which is I'm only, crazy how yeah, long I'm he's only been t- Yeah, 
but I'm only 21 and the person I was at 18 is completely different. So having to, mm. as a 47 year old man, to go back and put yourself in the mind state of what you were at 22 must be so frustrating and have people only concentrate on the stuff you did, what, 25 years ago. It's, it must be such a pain for him. So I'm so glad this piece has come out and he's able to just let go of that stuff and get it out there like I'm, I'm in a different place now. And I think it's a really, it's a beautiful thing to see that kind of growth from Nas. Um, yeah. And even, I mean, even his whole attitude about, you know, generation coming up under him. Uh, we mentioned Eminem kind of being chased by the shadow of his best stuff. And we got Nas in here talking about passing the torch and not, not just saying that like he would pass the torch, but saying that he like he's ready to pass the torch, like he wants to pass the torch, and then mm. you know talking about we were talking about Eminem, when Eminem's looking back, you know, on artists that are coming up under him, I feel like he gets so. I don't think jealous is the right word. You know, there's probably a touch more nuance than jealous, but you know, Eminem is very defensive about younger artists coming for his title, and you know, I mean, look at Kamikaze, the whole. And, you know, just that whole mindset of attacking anyone that critiques him, you know, attacking any artist that he thinks threaten him versus Nas, you know, looking back with just this new location where he's at now where he's saying like, yeah, like I am in a new spot and that means that there should be someone else who comes up to fill that gap. Yeah, and I think he very much accepts that music is in a different place now. He said, like, there weren't many rappers when I was coming up, but now you have thousands of artists out there. He essentially said, there is no torch I have to pass. These guys are lighting their own spark. They're making yeah. their own torch. Uh, I think that's a very mature way to look at it, especially when, I hate to keep using an Eminem example, but he seems to be stuck in this place where rap is this one thing and he is the king of all of the raps and you know and and the only people who he co-signs are allowed to be in that kind of area and Nas is such a mature and humble way of looking at it being someone so like he even said in the article like uh he was asked like what do you think about people calling you the goat and he's so well seasoned to this point it's like I don't pay attention to it anymore like people have been calling that for years it's I don't really mind (laughs) I thought that was great. I love his humidity, but at the same time, just his the thickness of his skin to the point where he isn't bothered by a new to- a new artist, but he's here to celebrate them and celebrate the evolution of hip hop. I don't you don't see that from many artists on that level. For them, just be like, go ahead, do your thing. Music's gonna evolve. I've made my mark. And I think he's comfortable and happy with how he's made his mark in his era and and he says it's done with Illmatic but the fact that people are still talking about it must comfort him even more in the sense that he knows that this genre he is like undeniably tied to it you know yeah and I mean you have to think too like hip hop has changed so much over the years too it's completely different than when Nas started right so you know they mentioned like Lil Nas X like compare that to you know the 90s <laughs> boom bap like it's it's completely different 
right? So th- there is no torch. Like they're in, in different leagues. It's almost a different, you know, if we're using sports metaphor, it's almost a different sport at this point, right? Like, um, yeah, and you're right. It's uh, Nas has reached the the maturity and of of acceptance, and uh, that will, I think, will also be part of his legacy. Great, great piece. Great piece. Yeah. I think every piece we've got today has been really excellent. So um, shout out to everyone, all these um, writers. Uh, do everyone individually shout out their uh, the people who wrote their piece? So uh, Eric Harvey for Pitchfork, thank you for being a great journalist, I guess. Um, And thank you for this piece. Yep, props to uh, Laura Schreffler for the NOS profile for Hote Living. And shout out to uh, Brittany Spanos for Rolling Stone on Ari Lennox Rejection Paved Road to Shea Butter Baby. All right, great. So thank you for joining us this week. Thank you for making it this far in the podcast. And that is us in search of source signing off. This episode of Insert a Source featured Ryan Gore, Brandon Hill and Brian Capital of the Central Source Creative Collective. The episode was edited by me, Charlie Taylor of the Fifth Moon Podcast Network. Music for the show is Fuck Shit Up by Basti. Thanks to Joe Records for the ability to use. This has been a Central Source and Fifth Moon Podcast Network production. Links for Basti, Chill Records, Central Source, The Fifth Element and content covered in the episode can all be found in the description below. Thanks for listening and we hope to see you next time as we continue our search for Source. Source.